Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. have a Bible, let's open up to Genesis chapter 1 and... The series we're going to do is called Hiding in Christ, and I had a couple of different people ask me about it. One of the other pastors here was that said, hoping in Christ? I was like, yeah, yeah, kind of, but not really, hiding in Christ. And another, one, talking to one of the elders here, said, did you say abiding in Christ? I said, no, I'm, I'm for that too, uh, but hiding in Christ. And so I know it sounds a little weird. I'll explain more of what I mean as we get into it. Um, but a lot of this has to do with how we relate to one another, okay, uh, other human beings. It also obviously has do with how we relate to God, but one of the core things about human beings, one of the ways that God made us that makes us distinct from the other uh, creatures is our relational capacity. Now, I know that if you have two cats that live at your house, maybe they like each other, and you're like, well, they have a relationship, you know, there can be dogs that like each other, and maybe, you know, scientists observe chimpanzees, and they seem like they love their children and things like that, but there's a capacity for spiritual, meaningful relationships that human beings have that all the other creatures don't have. Okay, so we're relational people. That's kind of where I want to start this morning. Let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, uh, theologians and scholars will talk about what exactly does it mean to be made in the image of God, right? It doesn't literally mean that God had a human body like us and that we're made physically to look like him. So what does it mean? And at least at a bare minimum what it means is we have this capacity for spiritual relationships, for deep, meaningful relationships, right? We know that even God exists before anything else existed in a relationship with himself. I mean, part of what it means to be a Christian is you believe God is Trinity. He's one, yet he's three. We don't get that in Genesis 1. You don't get that clearly, but you at least get an allowance of it. Let us make man in our own image. And that kind of like this foreshadowing that we're going to get later. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Ghost. And what were they doing from all eternity? They were relating to one another. And there was this kind of honesty and freedom and joy and openness with one another. And this is kind of a side note, but sometimes when people talk about uh, the creation of the world, say, well, it's almost like God was lonely or God was bored. God didn't know what to do with himself. And so he's like, well, I guess we should make some people to have friends. I mean, that's, that's a terrible way to think about God. It's much better to think, no, no, no. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, were having an eternal party. And it was so great. And there was so much joy and happiness that out of the overflow, they said, let's create other people that can be a part of this. And so part of what it means to be made in the image of God is we reflect this capacity for deep, meaningful, open, loving, vulnerable relationships with one another. Now, human beings don't have any real glory, any real dignity in and of themselves. In some sense, human beings are like the moon. Just think about the moon, right? The moon is this cold, dead rock, essentially, But all of us have probably had the experience sometimes going outside at night and the moon looks beautiful. It looks radiant. It looks powerful. It looks glorious. 
But why does the moon, on nights when it looks so full of splendor, what is really happening with the moon that makes it look that way? It's reflecting the power, the glory, the majesty of the sunshine. And so when human beings are in right relationship with God, there's something similar. There's something beautiful. There's something magnificent. There's something dignifying about human beings. Now, God puts them, you know, we're not going to read all these verses in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Partially because this is, you know, the Broward crowd that still comes to Sunday school. So I'm just assuming you probably are fairly familiar with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God's making this world. And a lot of times when people read Genesis 1 and 2, they immediately want to skip to, let's have a debate about six-day creation and evolution. You know, and it's like, I know there's a place for that. But at some level, you're missing a bigger, deeper point when you jump straight to that. And it's this. Why did God make the world the way that he made the world? He was making it like this perfect environment for human beings. Out of the overflow of his love for us, he was making a world that was perfect for us. That had land and had water and had beauty and had food. He's providing everything for them. And mainly they had a relationship with him. And look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So, even in the Garden of Eden, even in this place of perfection, where there was this free and open relationship between God and mankind, even there there was a rule. Even there there was one prohibition. So, just think about this for a second. If you ever get frustrated in your current life with like, God, I feel like some of the commands that you have given me in the Bible seem impossible. Always love my neighbor. Always respect my husband. Always forgive the person that offended me. Always pray for my enemies. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Listen, even if you were in the Garden of Eden, you would have been tempted to have some of those same feelings. Because notice that when God gave that command in Genesis chapter 2, that prohibition, He didn't give any explanation. He didn't say, don't eat from this one tree because it's poisonous. Right? It was a lot more like, I know I see all the strollers, okay? I know there's a lot of young children in this class, represented in this class. When you give your little children commands, you don't always explain it to them, right? Right? I mean, how many of us, when we were little kids and our parents said, don't do that, and we said, why, had one of our parents say, because I said so. And we hated that. And maybe even some of us kind of almost made a vow. I will never say that to my kids. And now it's like, I wear that phrase out, right? (laughs) There's something of God in that. Just trust me. Man and woman were created to be in this relationship with God, first of all, that was supposed to be based on pure trust. That if God said, just trust me, don't eat from this tree. Okay, no questions asked because I trust you. You're perfect, I'm perfect. What's the problem? I trust you. That's how it started. And listen, when they lived in that kind of trust and obey type relationship with God, it was beautiful. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now listen, that verse there is talking about a lot more than marital intimacy. It is talking about that, but it's talking about a lot more. There's a sense of they had nothing to hide, they had nothing to fear. They felt totally at home with themselves. 
They felt totally at home with one another. They felt totally at home with God. Right? They felt comfortable in their own skin. Does that make sense? I mean, I was standing in the back with Nathan right before class started, and, you know, he's like, wife's not here, sick child. I've got to find a place. You know, I'm kind of like the single guy here in this class. I've got to find it. It's a little bit awkward. And he said, I feel almost like being, and he was joking, okay, he's much more confident and secure than this. Sorry, Nathan, I'm using an example. I almost feel like a freshman again, you know, and going in the cafeteria the first time at Sanford. But we've all had those experiences in life, haven't we, where we don't feel comfortable with ourselves. We don't feel comfortable with other people. We don't feel comfortable even with God. There's so many times in life where we feel like we have to put a fake best foot forward. Isn't that true? Okay. In the Garden of Eden, that didn't exist. There was a sense of, I like myself. My wife likes me. God likes me. Even all the animals like me. This is wonderful. I don't have to be fake. I can be totally me. And I like myself. And I like my wife. I like God. And He likes me. It's just wonderful. Beautiful. We know it didn't stay this way very long. I think St. Augustine reasons, I don't know exactly how he gets there, but it lasted maybe about six hours. Okay? What a glorious six hours it must have been. So we start out as these relational beings, but really quick, we become ruined beings. Okay? So let's go into chapter 3 again. not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time. But chapter 3, starting verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God... Well, let's stop there. We'll read some more in a minute, okay? Satan comes in, and he lies to the people about God. It's very subtle. But essentially, he makes this implication, you can't really trust God. God's not really here to bless you. He's here to burden you. God's not really here to help you. He's here to hurt you. God's the man, so to speak. He's the tyrant. He's trying to keep you down. You know what this tree is really about? It's about a special kind of wisdom that God obviously has. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a subtle implication. I have this wisdom. You don't have it. You're lacking. God says you're made in His image. No, you don't have enough. You need to be more like God. And once they quit trusting God, then there is a sense. Okay, just this, Guys, this is the logic of sin every time at the deepest root. Whatever sin in your life you're struggling with, I guarantee you, you trace it down to the deepest root. Here's the logic. If God's not going to take care of me, if God's not going to provide for me, if God's not going to give me the best stuff in life, then I've got to go get it my own way. And if I've got to break a few rules to get there, I'm willing to do it. We may not say it out loud like that, but that's what's going on. And that's what they did, and that's how it all started. They believed this lie. Now, 
as soon as they sinned, in a sense, it was like the supernatural light inside of them died. It was like a gigantic, massive cloud came between the sunshine and the moon. There was an eclipse of the heart, so to speak. Uh, not to make us all think about that song. Um, but, okay, it never says they felt shame, but that's the clear implication. That chapter 2 ends with, they were naked and unashamed, and all of a sudden they feel a sense of shame. And what's their first desire once they started to feel shame? I got to cover up, I got to hide. Okay. One commentator said it this way, shame is the overpowering feeling that inward harmony and satisfaction with oneself is disturbed. Right? I mean, kind of a common layman's definition of the difference in guilt and shame would be this. Guilt, in a sense, is I did something wrong. I did something bad. I feel bad about what I did. Shame is much deeper. Shame is not just I did something bad. It, I am something bad. Not just I did or said something wrong. I am something wrong. Something is wrong with me. I am broken. Okay? Tim Keller says this way, All human beings have a primordial sense that we are not what we should be. And it is not easy to overcome that baseline sense of shame. Okay? Now, so what do they do? I want to ask a question. And sometimes, you know, people are teaching, you know, and they ask a question. They say, I don't want the Sunday school answer, right? Okay. I'm going to ask a question, and I do want the Sunday school answer. Okay? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they took the bite of the forbidden fruit, and the sense of shame and guilt came crashing down. What should have they instantly done? What should have been their first response? Repent, right? Run to God, confess, we're sorry, repent, have mercy. That's what they should have done. It's what we should do every time. The, this, the second that we are aware, I've crossed the line, I've sinned. But what was their first response? To hide. It wasn't to run to God and say, forgive us. It was to run away from God and say, I'll fix this. I got this. To hide. To cover. And here's the other thing that's very interesting. Once again, I'd like the Sunday school answer. Okay. As soon as they took the bite of the forbidden fruit, the sense of guilt and shame came crashing in. Of all the different relationships they had then, what should have been the one relationship they were most concerned with? Their relationship with God, right? But that is not the relationship they thought of first. At first they looked at one another. They'd been best friends. But listen, there was a perfect marriage once. Didn't last very long, Right? But you're like, I wonder what it was like. It was probably glorious for a day or two, however long it lasted. They had been the perfect best friends a second ago. And now they looked at one another and said, I don't trust you. There's something different about you. And I don't trust you the way you may think about me. I got to cover up. I got to hide. I got to put my best foot forward, even with my best friend. There's fear. There's shame. There's running. Okay. Fig leaf righteousness. I hope it's obvious at this point uh, where we're going with this whole idea of hiding in Christ. Okay? Because we're all trying to hide. When I talking to the one man said, abiding in Christ? I said, no, hiding in Christ. And I said, listen, all of us are hiding somewhere. Especially when we feel a sense of shame or fear or guilt or insecurity or whatever. We hide somewhere. Now, we may not literally hide with fig leaves as aprons. But we do it in more sophisticated ways that we'll talk about in just a second. Just give you an example. Okay, this, this can be, in one sense, as simple as 
I want to make sure every time I walk out of my front door, I look so beautiful and put together. Not a hair out of place ever. Because when I look good, I feel good. I look good, other people think I'm good. And listen, I'm not saying you got to, you know, come to church with your hair a mess. I'm just saying, I hope you're not kind of hiding behind your physical appearance. I bet a lot of us have some kind of an accountability group. Maybe an accountability partner, something like that. Where we some at least weekly, monthly, something, we talk about, how are you doing spiritually? Okay? I'm actually working right now on, on basically a quasi-discipline case with the church. And I uh, met with a gentleman, said, we need you to tell us what's going on. And listen, unfortunately, I've had situations like this more than once. And the reality is, I already know what's going on. Because other family members have come and told me what's going on, right? And I, I get, listen, and, and I said, before you even start talking, I said, let me just go ahead and say this. We need you to err on the side of saying too much. Don't hold back. Put it all out there. And he's kind of almost indignant, kind of like, oh, of course I'm going to put it all out there. And then he walked through about four or five different things that were pretty... Humbling, in a sense. Even had some tears. But I'm sitting there the whole time knowing he's barely scraped the surface. No, no. how did I know that? Because I've done that. Because all of us are experts at that, right? I'm going to show up to accountability this week, and I'm going to be about 90% honest. And that'll probably shock them enough, and it'll seem really genuine, and I can hold back the last 10%. And I can still go home with some of my own dignity intact. Right? You ever thought that way? Maybe not you, but your proverbial friend, right? <laughs> I was meeting with a guy. I used to be a member of Broadway. He's not a, a member here anymore. He's a very successful businessman. And this, this was his words, not mine. He said, every successful businessman that I know, Christian or not, is a scared little boy that's just trying to cover over his sense of fear. Now, that's probably an exaggeration, but there's a lot of truth in that. Sometimes where does all our drive to work hard come from? Listen, I'm, I, am, I am pro-work hard. I am pro-be a successful businessman. I'm a capitalist, all right? I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying, what's the motive of your heart? How do you hide from other people? Okay. Verse 10, where he says, I heard the sound of you. In Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation points. So if you want to emphasize something, you push it to the front of the sentence. And so literally when God's like, hey, Adam, what happened? Where are you? And, and listen, again, God is not like, I can't see you. Where'd you go? This is, this is a relational. What happened? Where'd you go? Right? I mean, have you ever maybe been in an argument with your spouse or maybe you didn't realize you were in an argument? You just came home and you started getting the cold shoulder and you're like, hey, what happened? What'd I do? <laughs> What'd you do? Where, where'd you go? Why is there distance? In a sense, that's what God's saying. And what Adam says is, you're sound. It was the sound of you. You were so loud, you scared me. It's like he's blaming God. And he doesn't talk about the real sin. Again, don't we love to do this? If somebody's like, hey, you, something's been going on with you lately. You've been kind of weird. You're off. I care about you. Can, can you talk to me? We love to talk about the hardship in our life. I just, my life's been so hard and there's hardship and da, da, da. We don't want to talk about the sin in our life. It's much easier to blame it on all the circumstances. Now listen, 
there is a very right way to genuinely share about, let me share about all these hardships going on in my life. But we don't need to ever do that in a way that hides from the deeper issue of our own sinfulness. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay. Um, there's a woman I know. Uh, she was kind of meeting with a friend, older, you know, godly or wiser kind of mentor lady. And she had a lot of hard stuff going on in her life, kind of with some of her parents, family of origin, all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of a, a woe is me venting session. And listen, I think there are, there's a time and place for woe is me venting sessions. I think you see David and others doing it in the Psalms to God. I think there's a right time and way to say, you know, I mean, I've even had times with my wife. It's like, I'm going to vent to you about one of my children, our children, okay? But I'll take responsibility right now. And, uh, and, and, and I'm kind of letting her know I'm not asking for advice right now. Sometimes I do ask for advice. A lot of times I ask for advice. But sometimes like, right now I don't want advice. I just need to blow off some steam to you about one of our children so I don't blow up at them. So there's a place for that. But if you get stuck in the venting stage, that's very dangerous. You realize that? Because then you start to believe, I'm just a victim. You'd never say it out loud. But subconsciously what you believe is, I'm just this righteous, godly person over here doing pretty much everything right. And I just keep having to suffer. And it's not fair. That's the way we hide. We tell ourselves, look how great I am. Look at all I'm having to put up with. This isn't fair. So back to these two women. And they'd had multiple conversation. And the older, godly, wiser woman, I think in a very gentle way, kind of said, you know, started trying to give maybe a little bit of feedback. Right? And the younger woman who was in this hard situation with her mom and dad kind of snapped back and said, don't give me this Sunday school answer. I know this Sunday school answer. I'm hurting. Do you realize what's going on there? Because listen, this might be the one that our culture does better than anybody right now. If I'm suffering and I'm in pain, and to some degree at the human level, if maybe I have really been a victim, then I'm allowed to do and say whatever I think with impunity. And you just have to shut up and agree with me and support me. How dare you ever push back and question if maybe I contributed 1% of sin to the relational problem. Does that make sense? It's a deadly way to live, guys. Okay, And that's essentially what Adam and Eve were doing. Now, some of y'all right now may be saying, this is kind of interesting, Olin, uh, but let's just be honest. This story has a talking snake. This story has God walking in the garden. This story has nakedness and fig leaf aprons. This story has running and hiding behind trees. We're in 21st century modern America. We're not doing any of that. Okay. Look at verses 11 through 13 just one more time. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. We do that kind of stuff all the time, do we not? I work with a lot of college students. I was talking to a college guy recently that kind of mentoring some. And uh, the guy's a Christian and talking about some sin, sexual sin, some of his past and some of that. And I was kind of trying to ask him some questions, and he kind of said, how could God even let me do that stuff when I was so young? Now listen, 
That's a fair theological question, is it not? The origin of evil? I mean, some people would say that's the hardest theological question out there. Where did Satan even come from? So I'm not saying that's always a bad question to ask. But do you understand how even that question can become an excuse, a blame shifting? It's not really my fault. It's God's fault. He shouldn't have let it happen, right? If you're a Presbyterian, God's sovereign, right? It's his fault, it's not my fault. I don't have to bear the burden anymore. Guys, Jim Boyce, longtime pastor, Philadelphia said, we are ashamed of ourselves and we will use any device as a disguise. Anything. So, this would be a very depressing place to end and don't worry, we're not going to end here. Okay? So, we started out as a relation people. We very quickly became a ruined people, but God in His grace has made us a redeemed people. Okay? Skip down to verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Okay. Now, why do we come up with all these different ways to try to cover ourselves? Because at some level, we're trying to save ourselves. Now, I, I don't think we realistically think, if I dress nice enough, if I tell enough lies about what I did on the weekend, if I'm successful enough in business and I look like I'm all put together, that if I do that good enough, I'm going to go to heaven. We don't, we don't believe that. But what we do believe is I can, I can save my life on earth. I can save my reputation. I can have a reason to keep my head held high with some dignity. Does that make sense? But even that's a false game. Even that won't work. It's, it'll never be enough to cover this sense of shame. Now, I hope you hear me. The desire to run and hide and cover is a right desire because we do have shame. I mean, here, here's another very popular thing in culture right now. All shame is toxic. Y'all heard this kind of language? You shouldn't feel shame about anything. Side note. There is a sinful type of shame. There is a toxic type of shame. Like let's say you grew up with an abusive father that beat you and you feel all sorts of shame like something must be wrong with me. Why dad beat me? You shouldn't feel shameful about that. It's not your fault. Right? So there is sinful forms of shame that you have to cast off. But our culture in many ways is throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. Because there is a godly type of shame. When you sin, it is your fault. You should feel bad. You should repent to the person, to God. But we don't do that. That's, at least that's not our first instinct, just like it was in Adam and Eve's. I have a good friend, and he, their family had this big dog. And it was one of these happy, friendly, like never barked, never bit, just the happiest, nicest, cuddly, playful dog in the universe. Sleep with the kids. I mean, just wonderful dog. Dog got hit by a car. It lived, but was really hurt. Limped home, crawled under one of the beds, you know. So the dad, the owner, goes trying to get the dog to help it, to take it to the vet, save its life, right? What do you think the dog did when the dad starts crawling under the bed to try to pull the dog out? Snapped at him. First time he's ever done it in his life. That's us. All the fear and the pain and the hardship that we've experienced in life and a lot of it being self-induced, maybe not all of it, some of it not our fault, some of it our fault, somebody comes to help us like the doctor and we snap at him. Don't touch me there. Don't ask me a question about that area of my life. Too sensitive. Back off. 
You ever done that? You, you ever had that experience? Or maybe you've done it to somebody else or they've done it to you? Okay, I know I have. Somebody asked me a question about maybe a tender spot in my life I don't want to talk about. And I know how to throw a verbal brushback pitch that says, don't go there. You try to go there with me, I'll make you pay. But do you see how stupid that is? Especially if somebody's coming to us in love to try to help us. It might hurt to set the bone in our broken arm or whatever it may be, okay? But we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to be honest with other people. So let, let me try to make this really practical, okay? Early in my marriage, my wife and I used to fight a lot, okay? Um, and sometimes after the fights and arguments, my wife would say, you know, when we're trying to repent and make up, she'd say, you, you were so harsh to me in that fight. And I, my typical response would be like, no, I wasn't. I wasn't harsh. I didn't raise my voice, and I didn't cuss, you know? So what do you mean? I was harsh. She'd say, well, you were sarcastic. You cut me off. You were impatient. You wouldn't let me finish my sentences. You would kind of laugh at me, some of the stuff I would say. And I was like, oh, that's what you mean by harsh. I was like, okay, I guess I'll, if that's your definition of harsh, I guess I was harsh. Here's the point. If you don't know how you're sinning, it's hard to really repent of it. Does that make sense? If I had defined harshness as only raising your voice and using cuss words, I won't give an example of that, okay? I could say, not doing it. Look how righteous of a husband I am. But she said, no, no, let me expand the definition of harshness for you. I was like, ah, I am doing that. You're right. I need to repent. It wasn't that simple, okay? Just... I gave you about three years worth there, compacted into <laughs> two minutes. Okay? But here's the point. I want y'all this semester, even today, even tonight, spend some time saying, God, help me understand the specific ways that I try to cover over my sense of shame, my sense of fear, my sense of insecurity, where I'm not running to hide in Christ but I'm trying to hide in my own efforts to make me feel better about myself, to restore some of that dignity. Does that make sense? And listen, if you really want to go there, let me tell you the best way to do it. Just ask your spouse. If you're like, I'm not really sure. I mean, this is a very interesting lesson, but I'm not sure how it applies to me. Wait till the kids are in bed tonight and just say, honey, um, what you think that lesson tonight or this morning? How do you think I do that? I bet they'll know. Because <laughs> they've been eating it, right? <laughs> but listen, part of that presupposes that there's at least enough safety and maturity in the marriage to be able to ask one another that question. And, and I just, there may not be right now. Be honest about that. Find a friend, find a counselor, find a pastor, find a elder or mentor somebody you can work through this stuff because until we start to really see it and really repent and lay down our excuses and lay down our blame shifting it's really hard to grow it's really hard listen you can grow really well intellectually you can become a genius theologically if I pass out you know a theological exam next week you can make an A plus up here, and your heart can be cold and distant and shallow from God and from other people. 
because you're not really practicing the truth that you know. Now, the instinct to cover up was right. God had said, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. And he meant the whole pack when death, when God meant it, was the whole package. You're going to die physically, you're going to die spiritually, you're going to be put into hell. Death. Yeah, that didn't happen. They did die spiritually. They didn't die physically. They weren't instantly condemned to hell. Why? God had mercy. God pursued them in mercy. But you know what? Some little innocent animal that day did have to die. Animal didn't do anything wrong. But the animal died and God said, hey, look at this. Look at these clothes. You do need clothes. But your little fig leaf righteousness efforts, it's not going to work. But look at me. I made some clothes for you. They will keep you warm. They will keep you safe. And this is, guys, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That when we come to Him in open honesty and confession, He covers our shame with the righteousness of Christ. It makes me think about the prodigal son coming back home, probably still literally covered in pig slop. Smelly, nasty, filled with a sense of shame. I mean, I get this mental picture of him kind of walking back, little baby steps, and he's practicing the speech. He's going to say, Dad, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And Dad jumps off the porch, and he sprints to him, and he doesn't even listen to his whole speech. Like, shut up. I don't want to hear what you got to say. You're back. I love you. Get the royal robe of righteousness and put it on him. My son was dead. Now he's alive. One commentator said this, guys. Just if you, if you don't get anything else, get this. God is more eager to forgive us than we are to be forgiven. And you may think, i got some pretty ugly stuff in my life that I really want to be forgiven. God is more excited about forgiving you than you are about getting the forgiveness. But the key is coming to Him in open, honest humility, putting it on the table and say, Lord, I want to be healed. I want to be forgiven. I want to be covered. I want to hide in the finished work of Christ in my stead. And not so I can keep sinning. So by that power, I can be changed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much truth in Your Word. And there's so much truth that we already know, Lord. Uh, And there's so much truth that we know and we don't apply. Or we don't apply it fully. We don't apply it deeply enough. So, Lord, I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for everybody hearing this. As the loving doctor, would you crawl under the bed, so to speak, and come near to us? And even if we kind of snap at you in our pain and our fear and our insecurity... Would you keep coming after us to sanctify us, to expose us to ourselves so that we can see our sin, that we can see our hiding, we can see our lies and our blame shifting and our minimizing, and we can be forgiven. And we can experience a deeper joy and intimacy with you, a deeper confidence based in Christ, and that would lead to deeper joy and intimacy in all of our human relationships. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen 
and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. 